What's up, Energy Fam? This is Justin, and welcome back to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. My goal with each episode is to deconstruct the minds of today's energy thought leaders to uncover their framework and tools used in their journeys of providing energy to the world. So sit back, relax, and remember that everything you see around you requires some form of energy. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and kick this thing off. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm here in Zoom land, as always, with repeat guest Adam Murray, Vice President of WeldFit, along with his partner in crime, Dr. Andrew Parker, Executive VP at Hydrocarbon or for Hydrocarbons and Sustainability at SPL. But more importantly, folks, they are the hosts of the hot new podcast called Let's Clear the Air. Gents, welcome to the show. How are we doing today? Great. Doing good, man. Thanks for having us. Good. No, absolutely. Uh, and for the listeners, if if you've just basically caught wind of Wicked Energy, and you just started joining, uh, you may have not listened to the episode I had with Adam. Uh, so I encourage you folks listening to go back, listen to episode 31, revisit that, hear Adam's detailed story on, you know, his background, um, you know, in energy, what he's doing at WeldFit. We get into a great conversations about AI, pipeline productivity, uh, communicating with the energy industry, um, and, and just a, along with a whole other list of topics. So I do want to start by clearing the air here. Andrew, how many times have people joked with you about being able to treat anyone's illness or fix anything because you're a doctor? There's got to be something. <laughs> so it's uh, it's actually a really funny debate that I have. I I do not go by doctor at all. And uh, your Your website I, says so. So, so I don't, yeah, I mean, maybe in like a formal setting, uh, you know, uh, on the company website or something, I'll, I'll go by doctor, but for the most part, and I don't, I don't want to like offend anyone listening, but, uh, people with PhDs that, that want to go by doctor are generally just narcissists in my opinion. And, um, <laughs> I, I try to avoid that because I think it, uh, it kind of gives the wrong impression. I'm not that smart. Like if you're like a fan of like big bang theory, I don't know what the name of the geologist guy was that Sheldon never thought was like a real doctor because he wasn't a physicist, you know, geology is not a real science. Howard. Yeah. Howard. So I mean, oh, yeah. Howard, there we go. Yeah. So I'm, I'm like the Howard. Uh, in, <laughs> so I, I try to not, you know, misrepresent myself. No, that's, but you know what? I, I mean, like, I want to like firstly commend you. I mean, anyone who's committed that much amount of time to schooling, uh, I, I have a lot of respect for. I, to your point, like I'm not real smart. I ended up getting uh, an engineering technology degree, and, and then I stumbled into grad school. Did fairly well, but I think to commit yourself to that level of education, listening, studying, and I would imagine you got your PhD all while working uh, a full time job. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But it wasn't like you just got out of high school and when you did your grad and then all of a sudden stumbled in PhD, right? Like you, you waited no, and then actually, got, went back. No, that's totally how it happened. Actually. Oh, it did. Um, oh, okay. I went straight from my, if I had taken a break, I probably would never have gone back and gotten my oh. degree. Um, okay. Yeah. I went straight from undergrad. So see Boulder, uh, right into my graduate work at Texas A&M. And, ah. um, when I got to A&M, man, I was like, I thought I was going to go be a college professor. And that's the whole reason I did the, the graduate track was I was going to go be a college professor. And about two years in, I realized that was not going to be what I wanted to do. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, I, I was too far in to like hit the eject button at that time, but um, I, I, kind of, I knew, I knew halfway through, I, I wasn't going to go that route. So. Gotcha. I mean, again, regardless, uh, commend you for that. It's uh, it's, it's no easy task. So uh, where are you guys visiting from today uh, or recording from real quick? Andrew, start with you. We're, you're in Denver, right? I'm in downtown Denver. We nice. recorded a podcast yesterday and the Nuggets parade was like going on behind him and you can, all, you can almost yeah. hear it. <laughs> no way, dude, that's yeah. crazy. It's, yeah. So I was I was telling you earlier, I, w I was in Denver this week for Ertech. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, it's a, it's a sort of a tech conference uh, that was in Denver. Great turnout, but uh, to your point, like here in Houston, it's 100 degrees. 
and uh, Denver was a it was a beautiful like 57 degrees or 60 degrees or something like that in the morning. Went for a nice run in the sun, um, and yeah, I could I I walked from the Rally Hotel to the convention center um, and didn't even break a sweat. Whereas if like I walk from my front door to my car down here right now, it's like you automatically start perspiring. So uh, yeah, again, I, I I appreciate the sort of the cooler summer air uh in denver and, and adam you're you're in dallas right uh yeah i actually uh i'm in historic downtown mckinney now so we just moved about two weeks ago so ah well i noticed the background you've got the same badass mural back there but your your background the shelves and stuff is a totally yeah. different background man is this a uh, new room or is this the new house no i am still in boxes what you can't see back here is boxes of books and stuff like that and then uh, over here's my gym. I got a uh, tunnel and the bike and all that stuff. So, dude, that's awesome. I know we share that same passion, uh, the health and fitness. You you did some bodybuilding back in the day. Um, did you have you seen Arnold, the new Netflix documentary? Uh, I haven't watched it yet. I was traveling this week also, so I haven't. Okay, haven't uh, binge watched anything in a while. So. <laughs> well, I, it's it's rare that we do, and uh, of course, someone who's who's always been a a big fan of of Arnie and, and just in bodybuilding in general. I had to watch it. I watched the first episode and I was I was hooked, which I haven't binge watched it. But uh, based off the first one, it's uh, I highly recommend it for anyone out there that hasn't watched it. Um, yeah, moving on. So when we started talking about this, and Andrew, I want to go to you. Uh, you had made mention about people on LinkedIn who see there, there's a lot of self proclaimed experts on LinkedIn, and and someone I I, I believe was either uh debating you or they were questioning something you had posted can you elaborate because i think it, it brings a very uh good topic of conversation around that yeah so you know my background is in climate science so that's what i studied for graduate school thinking i was going to go that route and you know ended up in industry and kind of had this unique perspective of you know i understand the industry and how essential it is to our day-to-day -day life. And I also understand the climate conversation fairly well. And, uh, you know, I think one of the hard parts about talking climate and energy with people is that, you know, data can be manipulated to make, you know, different points, uh, you know, and it's all truthful. It's just how you argue it. And so seeing a graph out there, total emissions, it was a big a plot of China and Canada. And there's a pretty big, you know, dramatic difference in emissions between China and Canada. And people were kind of using that to say, oh, you know, man, look at how much emissions uh, the Chinese are putting out relative to Canada. Why does Canada have a, you know, a carbon tax? And, and why are we concerned about our emissions here? Um, you know, factually, the graph is is not inaccurate, right? It's just being used in a way to to make a point for someone's perspective. But, you know, I kind of raised the the opposite, which is, well, hey, look, of course, the Chinese are going to have a whole lot more emissions. Their population is 35 times that of Canada. And if you wanted to get technical and you broke it down and you looked at emissions per capita, so how much does each person, individual person, emit between Canada and China, People in Canada actually emit two times as much CO2 in a year than the average person in China, right? And so, like, hmm. both, like, neither, neither graph or neither stat is wrong. Right. They just, you can use it to argue two entirely different points, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. like, it was just like a, hey, like, this is why we should be worried about it. And then you get the, you get the people who then all of a sudden want to debate you on the merits of like, you know, CO2 and CO2 is not carbon or CO2 is not a greenhouse gas or climate change is fake. And it's, you know, it's like people with like, you know, degrees in like library science and philosophy trying to like debate on the merits and I don't know. I think yeah. it just uh, was a microcosm of the challenges we have right now communicating energy and climate. Yeah, that bring that reminded me of a post that I did. I posted <clears throat> uh, a, a infographic of a company, a utility company that published an infographic, right? And all I did was repost it and say, you know, hey, this is pretty interesting. You know, I think it was 
basically if you deliver 100 BTU of gas, you get like 91 BTU at your house, right? Through through your gas system. Whereas if you deliver electricity to your house, you know, if you start with 100, you get down to whatever it was, 73 or 77 or something like that. And it just kind of showed the energy loss along the way. And people were just like relentlessly going after me in the math. And I was like, I'm pretty sure like this company has lawyers and, uh, you know, people that approve this and engineers that have done the math. Like I'm just, it was a literal repost, like, and I yeah. commented on it, but like, I was like, why don't you ask them, the, the author of the infographic they're, they're tagged here. Like, please ask them. Yeah. Hey everyone, sorry to interrupt, but this episode is sponsored by 10X Technologies, pushing the boundaries of chemistry. 10X is innovating the future of the oil and gas industry with their proprietary materials-based technology solutions. With cutting-edge products like NanoClear, custom-designed nanofluids engineered to maximize the production of new completions and rejuvenate existing wells, 10X is driving a revolution in oil extraction. Meet Microhold, a specially engineered microparticle slurry that optimizes frac efficiency, props microfracs, and triggers far field diversion every well, every time sees the benefits. And if you're worried about frac hits, 10X has you covered with no hit, an innovative technology that mitigates frac hits via in-situ pressurization reaction. It's protection where you need it most. Then there's Sandbond, a sand consolidation chemical solution that's just another example of 10X's commitment to practical field-ready solutions. And let's not forget about Seroflow, a greener, cost-effective, proprietary blend of design materials to banish paraffin issues once and for all. That's 10X, where innovation meets application in the oil and gas industry. Find out more about their groundbreaking solutions at pumpmoreoil.com and be on the lookout for five, yeah, you heard it, five new products launching soon. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, well, because you're supporting it, they felt like you should have all the answers. And and if you don't, then shame on you, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, you know, the, the way, and again, I, I think, and Twitter is actually getting better, but I, I think LinkedIn is, is is a fairly healthy platform for conversation. Uh, oh. I, I would say a lot of it, at least through my experience, has been constructive, but I think it, it a lot of times too is whoever's plugging in comments and stuff. Like if you want fire you can find it right um but but to your point andrew i think it's it's good when you can clearly see people whose emotions get tied up into their conversations versus someone just you know kindly saying yeah like yeah interesting point like have a good one i'm not about to sit here and waste energy on debating you um and 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 andrew you made an interesting point is like someone that may have some sort of degree or their experience doesn't necessarily suggest that they have a depth of knowledge in whatever subject that they're trying to debate or argue about. But I mean, do, do you find that when you ever find yourselves in those situations where people are arguing a point that you're that to your point, where like, well, that's not really the entire point. Like the, the, the data is, is showing is, is trying to support a narrative or, or an opinion. And they're just gathering and putting it in a way that supports their thoughts. Do you find that most people that sort of curate unhealthy conversation and let's say talk about energy energy transition are those who are educated or mostly headline readers like kind of what's what's your thought on the people who are the loudest yeah it's uh, it's hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that there are still people with those beliefs stoking the fire of denialism you know you look at like some of the the prominent voices in the energy and climate conversation, right? Like Chris Wright from Liberty. Um, Steve Coonan, who's a, a physicist, used to work for BP, wrote a great book called Unsettled, talking about, you know, the state of, of climate science. And, um, you know, CEOs of companies like Shell and Exxon and Conoco and just, you know, so on. Like, openly, all of those individuals acknowledge the role of, you know, burning fossil fuels and adding CO2 and emissions to the atmosphere. Like it's not being like Chris Wright isn't out there being like CO2 isn't a greenhouse gas. He's like, it is a greenhouse gas, but like, you know, what's the alternative? And that's, I think the problem is like, there's no, it's, it's a complex topic to discuss. It's a complex topic to wrap your head around. And there's really not a great solution being proposed outside of 
you know, what we're doing in the United States and in Canada and some in the EU as well. Um, so I guess for me, it's hard that there are still people stoking the fire of denialism because I think it sets the conversation back and it, it just, and I just, I guess I don't know where it comes from. Like why, oh, we could get in a whole nother podcast, Justin, about like why people don't trust science anymore. Right. Like, I mean, we're probably not a debate we want to go down, but I mean, like, there's just like a, such a mistrust of, of the conversation and the data and, and. I don't know why people think they know better than the experts, but mm. that sentiment continues to, I think, set the set the narrative back for people like you and Adam and myself trying to have pragmatic conversations about, you know, a reasonable approach to our energy future. Right. No, and, and I would love to, again, like we talked about earlier, is having you back for a one-on-one, -on -one, because I think that is an interesting conversation is to try and unpack that and understand the why. Um, and, and so I, I do do want to carry that conversation on um, at the very least at some point. Uh, let, let's pivot and talk about the podcast, because I think, and, and it really sets a good sort of framework for for talking about the podcast and sharing what you guys are doing. So So you've branded Let's Clear the Air which is essentially a platform for discussions um, in that from the website fueled by cutting edge innovation, especially with regard to energy transition. And, and I'm curious, could you talk about a, a technology or an innovation that you've discussed recently on the podcast that's that, that has the potential to revolutionize the way we approach energy, energy production or consumption? Is, is anything come to mind yet? Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> in our most recent release, I mean, we're only on episode four or five or whatever that's been uh, commercialized. But, you know, we had a really good conversation with CECOPS, um, Paul Curry and Ian Cooper, um, you know, based around this methane monitoring, right? I mean, there's entire conferences built around monitoring methane emissions these days. And um, certainly the Inflation Reduction Act and the methane emission regulations from this current administration uh, have really helped fund some of that, right? You can't fix what you don't measure. Uh, so, um, you know, there's a lot of those going on, but CCOPS is really neat um, because they're using, you know, NASA developed technology, uh, basically satellites and and other, you know, items to, to track these methane emissions. And that does a lot. That does a few things for our industry is like one, it gets us out of our echo chamber, right? Like you can talk to incoming students, you can talk to um, other people that might be, you know, considering leaving the industry, like, hey, you know, we're working in space here. Like if that's interests you and you don't get a job with NASA, you can work here and still make a difference. You can still have a, a purpose in your career. Um, and then two, like I said before, you don't you don't fix what you don't measure, right? And so as long as you know we're continuing down this methane monitoring path, it's it's only gonna make profits go up. You know, you're keeping gas in the pipe. Uh, we're not wasting any any molecules, and um, it saves you from you know the methane tax and 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 fines and things like that. And mm -hmm. and it everyone else healthy. So you're killing a lot of, you know, you're knocking out a lot of things with this and, um, you know, kind of a long answer to that, but that's just one example. Of some of the stuff that we've been, we we're, you know, we are exploring and continue to explore. Hell yeah. Andrew, I saw you unmute. Was, is there any sort of technologies or innovations that you guys have discussed that piques your interest? No, like Adam said, we're, we're still early on. I think you sure. know, we spent the first, you know, three or four podcasts talking to thought leaders, um, setting the stage, right? And we had Scott Tinker, we had Robert Bryce, uh, we got Trisha Curtis coming on. Um, I think next week when that episode drops, just setting the stage on the the, the geopolitics and the the economics and um you know, the, the big picture kind of conversations and then started to dig into the, the technologies, right? So spoke to CECOPS, we got uh, Bridger Photonics. I mean, you can't go to a methane conference and, and not see Bridger and the cool stuff they're doing with their aerial surveys. Um, so, you know, yeah, I mean, the methane tech is, is super 
is super awesome that that the the industry is deploying. I think there's a lot of interesting facilities engineering um, ideas that we haven't really covered yet in the podcast. But you know, companies are getting you know pretty savvy with with some of the new you know well pad designs to to reduce emissions. And so I think there's some really cool stuff there as well coming down the pipe that that we'll talk about in subsequent episodes. Awesome. No, and, and again, it's, I mean, even though you guys are, like you said, four or five episodes deep, by the time this is released, you'll be closer to, to probably, you know, eight or 10. Uh, but the reality is like, think of how many hours of good conversation, constructive conversations that you can now use to educate a mass audience. And, and that kind of leads into my next question. And Andrew, we, we alluded to this earlier, like it's such a complex conversation that no one really knows the answer to. We're all just trying to figure it out. But it can be challenging to communicate a lot of these ideas to the average listener, to the majority of people who ultimately drive votes, which drive you know, policy and decisions and regulation. How are you going to approach this challenging and complex topics to not only preach to the choir, but to communicate these advanced conversations that make it digestible for people who really actually need to know about it? It's a great it's a great question because that's really the whole purpose of the let's clear the air effort. So let's clear the air is part of a outreach campaign that is supported by the GPA midstream organization. It's really their first stab at, you know, an outward facing educational and advocacy um, effort. And they've been working with Han Public, which is a marketing firm in Austin, doing a lot of targeted research with respect to reaching those, you know, non-industry, I would say millennial down age group mm -hmm. to like, how do they think about the energy and climate conversation? What do they want to hear? What are they curious about? So they're, they're kind of taking this market research and then they're kind of feeding it to Adam and I, and the conversations that we're having are, are probably a little less technical in nature than some other energy podcasts. We're really trying to just be pragmatic and factual in our approach to the conversations with, with our guests so that, you know, someone who's never worked in oil and gas before can tune into the podcast on their commute and easily understand and consume the information that we're providing in a relatively unbiased and, and honest manner. Would you agree with that, Adam? Yeah, um, you know, we got a great team behind us um, that 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 helps us, um, you know, sort of lay things out and for our conversations, um, you know, so they're, I would say, partially scripted, right? We go off script all the time, um, but that has been sort of part of the feedback, right? Is like, hey, let's not get too political because then we, we, we walk our way into this fire that we don't, you know, we're not trying to get into, we're not trying to be Howard Stern of podcasts, right? Like we want to present the facts, present the um, uh, technological advances, the services, the innovation that's going on. And really, I mean, no one knows energy better than energy companies. So they're doing a lot of it, you know? I mean, ExxonMobil, Shell, BP, Williams, I mean, midstream kind of companies, they're funding all of this stuff. And so, um, you know, pointing out the good things too, you know, I guess that could introduce a little bit of bias, but I mean, it, it, we, we, we haven't done a great job of pointing out the good things that we're doing as an industry. And so the hope is to do that a little bit better. No, you're right. It's, I mean, anytime we communicate, whether we're communicating something you know, positive or, you know, sometimes reporting on things that aren't, i.e. like whether it be spills or fatalities or, you know, the unfortunate events that happen just in, in energy production in general, it's, it's, especially in oil and gas, when you communicate something positive, it's like you're bragging. And then when you're communicating something negative, it's like, ha, huh, see, you guys are a big, bad death and destruction. Well, <laughs> we talk about that in a few of the uh, monitoring podcasts is like self-reporting, like, we self-report on more than any other industry on the planet, right? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's certainly something to jostle around in, you know, <laughs> yeah. you can have that debate with yourself. But, you know, 
this is why I love being on, you know, your podcast and other podcasts and was very thankful to be invited here is one, I do get the opportunity to work with Andrew and extremely smart people that take a good look at the, you know, global picture, but also the oil and gas industry, you know, beginning in the seventies, maybe earlier than that, really thought that no news was good news mm. and they did not comment on anything. They did not, you know, they did not publish anything more than they had to. Um, they barely have websites now. It's 2023. I mean, some midstream companies that I go on their webpage is literally one page um, <laughs> talking about anything. And so, well, what happened between, let's just call it 1980 and now, the digital revolution happened and everything, newspapers, everything is now online. And so when AI starts to take over and people start using that more, where does AI get its information from? And that's the internet. And our industry has nothing out there that's positive about what we do. And so I'm challenging my circle and, you know, Andrew and everybody we talk to, to post, you know, factual things and good things that we're doing because those will start to get picked up in Google searches and by chat GPT and all that stuff. Because as of right now, if you type in, you know, tell me something good about natural gas, it will definitely write a paragraph good about natural gas, but then it will write two paragraphs that's like, but it's also a major source of methane emissions. And if you breathe it, you're going to die, basically is what it said. <laughs> Justin, yeah. did, you, uh, did you read, uh, I forget when it came out, maybe last year, or early part of this year, uh, an article by Robert Bryce about the anti-industry industry. Ever, yeah, I'll send it to you after the show. You I would like it. to read it. Yeah, it doesn't ring a bell, but I would so, like to read it. So he did a lot of research into you know how much pro clean energy lobbies spend and what their budgets are, and relative to pro oil and gas slash nuclear. Yeah. And like it's hard to think about or comprehend. Oil and gas is outspent four to one by the NGOs. Wow. Right. Like there there is a huge discrepancy in the voice that, you know, people consume through social media every day. And so, like, I think your podcast, our podcast, other podcasts, let's clear the air, the campaign in general. It should all be about taking back the narrative. Right. Like Adam to Adam's point, like the industry has done such a poor job representing itself and it's allowed the misinformation to permeate and we haven't stood up for ourselves and i think that inviting people to the conversation in a non-confrontational way it yeah. just says like to adam's point right like try to stay out of the politics try to stay out of the you know out of the fray and just have like a real straightforward conversation and, and invite people to listen to you is I think critically important right now. Yeah, no, it's, it, that's a, again, that's a, it's a very sort of common topic of discussion and one that I've just continuously are, am having more and more of. And I'm curious based on whether it be the companies that you guys have interviewed, because I would imagine anyone that you interview, you do some degree of vetting to make sure that their companies, whether it be mission, vision, everything else align with, 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 the initiatives that you guys have for let's clear the air, but um, are there, are there any examples of companies whose efforts are noteworthy in the way they're uh, communicating, not necessarily their services or their widgets or whatever, but how they approach energy transition with that, without it being us versus them, but more so let's collaborate as energy industries um, and again, it's kind of a long question, but, and I can rephrase it, but I'm just curious if you guys have come across any companies who are doing this well, and, and maybe some, something that other companies or people listening can take away from it. Or if you don't just simple ideas for companies in general, how to more effectively communicate their message in a non-divisive way. I, I think that's, uh, I think that's really part of the problem is no one really knows the right way. Um, a lot of people in my circles and myself included have started posting, 
that it's not really an energy transition, right? When you look at a transition, that means you're replacing one with the other. Um, I, I think anybody who looks at the energy statistics over the past, I don't know, 50 years knows that we're not replacing anything potentially other than coal at this point, um, <clears throat> you know, in the energy cycle, we're growing. So, you know, I, I think even a few of your guests have really called it energy expansion or energy addition, um, you yeah. know, and, and, and that's, that's sort of the message that we got from Dr. Tinker as well. I mean, there's still 3 billion people that need energy or use less energy than our refrigerators. Um, it's only going to expand. And so getting out of this transition conversation that pits me against you or you, us against them, it's more along the lines of like, okay, how can we do this for this particular region or this particular group or this particular, you know, country the best we can? And if, you know, the Switch Energy Alliance, again, to reference Dr. Tinker is like, okay, if you're using dung, then go to wood. If you're using wood, then go to propane. If you're using propane, go to, you know, solar or wind or whatever, you know, whatever you can afford and whatever is best for you at that time based on your geographical location. And so it's, it's an extremely complex conversation because it's not like any of the large midstream companies can come out and say, hey, you guys can do this and this, and that's the right answer because that might be the right answer in Colorado, but that's not the right answer in Dallas. And that's not the right answer in Seattle or, you know, wherever you are. So, um, mm -hmm. I, I definitely know that the industry is struggling with that. And that's why it's, 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 uh, you get the Chris Wrights that try and look at it at a global level. You get Dr. Tinker, I think energy transfer, you know, in my own opinion here, I think has done an all right job. At least they're getting out there. And I think they had a Super Bowl commercial or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you also run the risk of like alienating the entire other side, right? Like we've seen kind of Target and Bud Light step into the the news these past couple of days, and we don't want to do that in the opposite direction, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you do run that risk, I guess. So, yeah, no, that's that's been an interesting sort of unravel to to watch. I think actually Bud Light, I think Modelo became the top. Uh, beer company now i guess when you measure it on a maybe revenue basis i think uh but either way they lost the the top slot there and they they've, they've declined rapidly <laughs> since but then i would never have guessed modello would have been second on that list though i would have thought it was like coors light but yeah modello yeah. by like a pretty good spread was was second second place and wow. now they've recently peaked into first I don't even think I've ever consumed a Modelo. Like that's. Crazy. I would like to yeah. look geographically, like where majority of the U.S. consumes Modelo. I would imagine it, it's, California, it's like California, maybe. You know, Modelo is still owned by Anheuser Busch, which that to me, that's why it's it's sort of crazy. Is like, oh really? The owner of Bud Light also owns Modelo, so. Huh. You know, I, yeah take that, take that with a grain of salt <laughs> <laughs> no it's an interesting like the more you know uh no yeah again totally side topic there but um uh, you know with right now and adam you and i talked about this uh in our podcast there talking about ai and and um just the rapid advancements in technology whether it's ai even just you know whether it be battery technology it's i guess it depends on you look at it in the micro or the macro but arguably yeah. things are evolving at a rapid pace, generally speaking. And so I'm curious, like, have you guys thought about how in your podcast, you're going to keep up with the pace of change to ensure your, your guys' discussions are timely and relevant. Um, and I mean, cause there's changes in, you know, regulatory, regulatory landscapes, policy, um, things are just constantly changing. And so have you kind of thought of like, to make sure that you your audience is up to speed on everything, I would imagine it's like based off the guests they're talking and you know in, in at the time you know it's it's relevant. But have you given any thoughts just keeping up with things, Andrew? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that's the luxury that Adam and I are afforded through the podcast partnership with GPA and and their their partners in Han. Um, because they're doing a lot of market 
research and trying to really keep their fingers on the pulse of what the listenership and membership of their organization want to be informed on. And so, um, you know, that feedback from them has really helped Adam and I kind of identify, you know, our guests thus far. And, um, you know, we were working, always working like yourself on lining folks up for, you know, future uh, appearances and um, that feedback and that market research they're doing is is really helping us kind of make sure that we're serving the needs of the listenership and, and keeping people informed and and ultimately we have the resources of GPA and the expertise of 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 their experts and and the the folks from midstream companies that are participating with them to uh, also come on and, and keep people informed. You agree, Adam? Yeah, I mean, we do timestamp them a little bit based on our conversations, right? Um, you know, if if we know that they're coming out in a few weeks and that might not be relevant, so we try and just explain where we are today. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's with with innovation changing and and all of the things that we're doing. I think we just utilizing that as as more ideas to continue the conversation. Yeah. Um, similarly, you know, the hope is. Uh, you know, I think as we've talked about before is the next technological change is right around the corner. So, um, you know, which will, which will be a game changer for our industry, whether we know what that is or not. But I think that's what gets us into the next century of, you know, fossil fuels and, and hydrocarbon fuels and things like that. Right. Uh, kind of going back to, to the, speaking about the energy transition or expansion or whatever you want to coin it nowadays, yeah. um, it, it all somewhat make means the same thing. Uh, it's it, but it's, it's not only about the technological factors. It's also about policy transition. It's about social acceptance. It's about economic feasibility. Could you share your thoughts on how the role of these non-technical factors, uh, like what's the role of these, and, and are you guys talking about these as well, or is it more so technology that you guys are focused on? But by non-technical factors, you're just specifically talking about policy, like regulatory. Policy, yeah, policy, social acceptance, economic feasibility was the three that I thought of. I recently gave a speech um, for Southern Gas Association uh, talking about uh, policy change in you know, American energy policy, basically. And the message that I tried to portray was you got to kind of read between the lines, right? Like at first read, when I read that stuff, I'm like, man, these guys just hate us. You know, they're just really trying to squash down what we're doing. But at the same time, uh, like with the IRA, there's a lot of funding in there for a lot of new technologies and a lot of things that that can help our industry, right? Like and 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 can promote entrepreneurs and, and small business owners into getting some of that money so that they can grow their business. And so I pointed out a few of those things. And I think, you know, taking a more positive approach or a more kind of read between the lines kind of approach is something that we really need to open up to. Now, I'm not saying give an inch and take a mile, you know, which which is everyone's first reaction. But um <laughs> You know, there there are funds out there for people to get FLIR cameras and there are funds out there for people to, you know, grow their methane monitoring stuff. And um, I, I think that only helps, you know, the small business owners and entrepreneurs try and get going. Yeah. Would you say on the this, would you say we've let's just call it since the pandemic, the social acceptance of oil and gas, do you think it's gotten better, worse, indifferent? Andrew, go ahead. Oh man, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I mean, it's I, hard to measure, right? It's it's you can't measure it, but it's you can maybe through well, conversations, social media. I mean, I again, a tough question, hard answer. I don't know. I was just no. It's a, it's a great question. I I, I don't. I, I say indifferent, like I, you know. I really want to be optimistic and say that, yeah, people are starting to come around to our industry a little bit more. Um, 
and I think they're going to have to, because we all know, you know, at the end of the day, the U.S. could go net zero tomorrow. And I mean, dude, we're just a fraction of the overall global emissions profile, right? 10%, I think. So the U.S. and Canada go to, you know, North America, let's just say goes net zero. You know, if if the Saudis and the Iraqis and India and China and Russia, and they don't, they don't follow suit, what's what's really the benefit of everything we're forcing the industry to do here. And, you know, when you think about, you know, natural gas in particular and and how it can provide really a global solution to not only developing countries, but, you know, countries that are, you know, heavy on coal usage and stuff. I, I think, you know, there needs to be a lot more support of the industry going forward so that we can develop the infrastructure and, you know, do what the U.S. has always done and lead from the front on on a solution. And so, yeah, I think people are slowly catching on, but I mean, it's nowhere close to what it needs to be, in my opinion. Adam? I, I would be a little bit more positive than that. I think because of COVID uh, and the healthy level of skepticism that everyone now has for, you know, the government and uh, the, the pharmaceutical companies, you know, people began questioning those probably mid to late last year. And, you know, all the facts are coming out now or all these studies are coming out now on the boosters and whatnot, which are only enhancing or entrenching people's beliefs and that kind of stuff. But um, I, I would say as someone who's on both Twitter and LinkedIn, um, I have seen a lot more people, especially in the dredges of the comment section, pushing back. I mean, uh, you know, they're not necessarily saying like, don't try to be a better person or don't try and do better. But, you know, this, this apocalyptic narrative is really getting a lot of pushback just because they've missed so many times before and people are starting to kind of point that out. So, yeah, uh, if I, if I could share maybe really quick, like an anecdote, Justin, yeah. um, I don't even know if I appreciated the industry as much as I did until last, last year, uh, flying and Adam's heard the story flying back from Dubai last May and it was an overnight flight from Dubai to Germany and uh, I think it departed about 1 a.m so hour hour and a half into the flight like I'm looking out the window I, I couldn't fall asleep and like I look out in the horizon I was sitting on the the east side of the aircraft and I'm like hmm that's weird it's like 2 30 in the morning and the sun is coming up you know I'm like yes yeah. and, and so like three or four minutes later I saw the flight map and I realized that it wasn't the sun. We were coming up on Southern Iraq and in the South Iraqi oil fields around Basra. And dude, I was just, I couldn't wrap my head around from 40,000 feet, the flaring and the size of the flaring. And just mm. the, you know, you just look out at night, you know, and you're flying over and just, I mean, the biggest flares I've ever seen in my life. And like, I, I've flown into North Dakota at night back in, you know, 2015 when their flare rates were still really high. And I, I know what it looked like, but to see like what they're doing in that part of the world and like, they do not care about the gas. And these, these flares are, you know, 10 story buildings that are just blowing gas. And it's not just one or two. It's like, there's just tens and hundreds of these flares. It, it blew my mind. And I was like, man, this is what people I think in the U.S. need to see to truly appreciate what we do as an industry at home. That's man, that's a, such a cool story to tell. And, and I think we live in aside, including myself, you know, we live in this bubble here most of the time. And then when you really take a step outside the U.S., well, even North America, I mean, because Canada arguably has some of the cleaner barrels produced, but you look at other parts of the world and it's, it gives you a lot of perspective on like how much work has to be done. And although we can push on us operators, hopefully it gets them to a position where they can lead the way for the rest of the world. But it's, yeah, we, it's, it's very interesting to see how other parts of the world operate and the, the degree of care that they have for this climate <laughs> challenge that we experience. Um, talking well, about I'll, I'll plug my own LinkedIn here, but I I made a somewhat controversial post, but I posted, you know, American energy is clean energy. 
and you know posted i didn't pull it up while you're sitting here but i mean it basically just talks about how how much energy we produce versus our level of emissions from the industry and like america is clean is the cleanest energy that we got right other than i think one or you know whatever we can go look at the post again but it's crazy yeah. it's not even that controversial to, to to think about but if you say it out loud man people are just like think you're crazy so yeah no it's a good point and, and andrew i don't know if again i don't know where you spend a lot of your focus on on your day-to-day -day, but uh have, have you looked at or even adam if you have when you when we talk about you know say pr producing the cleanest barrels i don't know how it's measured is it like you know co2 per barrel produced perhaps or i don't know how that's measured but is, is there a list of countries who obviously us canada probably up there but or is there a ranking system that like i don't know like world bank or someone measures or are you guys familiar with that yeah let me find it real quick but i was i was posting it and yes there are scorecards right they, ah, okay they rank on on a variety of different um of different metrics but yeah there are scorecards and while you're looking that up i, I was gonna i actually also came across something i read it and, and posted about it and talking about acceptance uh you know the Europeans, specifically Shell. Um, in, they had their investor day on June 14th, and a lot of the message they had was, you know, boosting their dividend by 15%, but actually increasing natural gas production, re-emphasizing uh, their investments into fossil fuels, obviously committing to their net zero emissions, but realizing that you know again they've kind of like pivoted in their business strategy to please investors but also yeah. i think our understanding like hey like bp you know a lot of the european majors have basically been like we're gonna start reducing our investments into fossil fuel production and when you look at them relative to u.s majors i.e exxon and chevron they're underperforming now again i think their objectives and strategies are different but it's interesting to see the shift kind of back um and again, I, I'm certainly no equity analyst. I'm not a, I don't study companies to like that depth, but on a high level, it seems like there's somewhat of a shift back to going where either the money's made or they realize if we don't keep up with production, the mark, the like demand's going to be there. Who's going to be there to supply it? Hopefully it's the companies who do want to produce it, produce it in the most sustainable manner possible. So it's the environmental uh, pr uh, protection index, uh, environmental performance index, EPI, uh, okay. of the top 20 largest non-U.S. petroleum producers, the average EPI is 39. The U.S. is 51.1. The higher the number, the better. That's for crude oil. Uh, same thing for gas as in the U.S. They're, you know, generally one and the same, but, uh, 20 largest non-US natural gas producers, their average is 38.6, ours is 51. There are people with higher uh, environmental performance indexes, like Australia, their uh, natural gas uh, performance index is 60.1, to almost 10 points higher than the United States. But we produce seven times the amount of natural gas that they do. They do about, let's see, this is billion, billion cubic feet. So they do six, 6,000 billion cubic feet, whatever that is, uh, or 5.1 billion cubic feet. Let's just use that. And then United States does 34, almost 35. So, I mean, we produce seven times as much with a score that's, you know, percentage points away. So hmm. it's, uh, it's really interesting. I mean, there's other countries with better EPI scores for sure. Like Norway is higher, um, you know, a few others that are, that are there, but no one that does the volume that we do. I mean, we do, yeah. what is it? 18 million barrels per day or something like that of, 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 of liquids of oil barrels per day at one point. And, uh, you know, the next closest is Saudi Arabia, at like 11. Well, next, no one does the volume we do and probably no one has the potential to scale like yeah. we do. Right. And so, yeah, it's, um, I mean, 
Oh man, we could go on and on about just the craziness of the situation, Justin, right? I mean, we could talk about, you know, California taking in all their oil from Saudi and Ecuador. Uh, yeah. It's just, no, it's, uh, it, the, the California topic is interesting, right? The, the, the potential there is, is vast. And a gentleman who speaks uh, with passion behind that is Mike Umbro. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Mike. Umbro's the man. <laughs> yeah, he is. I, uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting him, having him on the podcast. Uh, I think he actually is moving to Oklahoma City, uh, or he did. But uh, he, it's funny because when I talk to him, he's like, I'm, I'm pro-California. He's like, I, I want to be the one who makes a change. And then I saw he was on Twitter or something about moving to Oklahoma. I was like, man, I thought, yeah, what, what happened? Uh-huh. But I haven't had a chance to to talk to him since then. But but yeah, to your point, I mean, it's it could go on and on and on. Um, but the, the last thing I want to talk about, and people always say you shouldn't talk about it, but I'm going to, is politics. Um, but we're not going to get into like the, the nitty yeah. gritty. But I'm curious. The reality is next year we have uh, an election. Um do you think, depending on which way the election goes, is it going to have a, is it going to majorly shift uh, the trajectory that we're on now? I mean, any sort of crystal ball, who's going to get in? I mean, kind of give some like maybe just uh, some high level comical relief to the direction you think this election might go and where it's going to take, let's call it oil and gas. That's a really tough one to answer. Um... <clears throat> you know, in just without looking at the data, you know, I feel like even under Democratic uh, presidents, oil and gas does pretty well, right? They kind of put the regulations on, price goes up, companies become profitable. Um, Republicans come in, lower the size of the government, limit regulation. We continue to pump as much as we can, and then prices come down. So it's sort of this balance. Um, you know, the, the non-answer answer is you kind of hope that the checks and balances system of uh, the United States government work themselves out, right? Like, so either the House or the Senate and the president, you know, can't force through too many things uh, that have too much of an impact. So, uh, you know, personally, professionally, and, and, you know, even as a company, I really try and not let whatever's happening in the day-to-day affects affect those decisions too much i always think it's funny when i have customers say you know oh we're waiting for the election which is very common in election years you know like we're not going to invest this 300 million dollars in the gas plant until we know who's the next president and i'm like no matter who it is you're going to do this gas plant anyways it just changes your economics a little bit but yeah uh, you know that's a it's a pretty safe answer it's pretty pc answer it's not going to make yeah. anyone mad, right? <laughs> I, well, I mean, come on, Andrew, throw some, throw some yeah, we, fire into we, this. We probably this could uh, get the get fracking fired. revolution happened when Obama was in office, right? I mean, literally happens the year he was elected, so it's pretty hard to it's pretty hard to argue with that. That changed the industry. So I, I think for me, whoever Republican or Democrat, whoever takes the office, needs to I think apply their their uh their words a little more strategically right i think um i'm frustrated uh with the regulatory and policy making framework and and the current administration's at least outward facing uh narrative towards the industry and you know it's like we say we want to reduce emissions um we, we say we want to be better stewards of the environment and yet here you have you know uh, an industry that is ultimately going to be a catalyst one way or another for a lot of that change and yet we can't get infrastructure built we can't get you know permitting passed we just we can't do what we need to do to be uh better even better stewards of the environment as an industry right i mean you don't like flaring well let us build some pipelines and some infrastructure you don't you know um so i just hope that that whoever democrat or republican comes into office has a a bit more middle of the road approach to energy because i think it would be bad for industry if a republican came in and just said screw regulatory we're just we're going to open the faucet back up and just we're going to drill baby drill because uh, i don't know if that's really like a, a narrative that 
you know, extends the olive branch to the other side, but equally as yeah. bad, I think, as, a, as another Democratic president that comes in and is as, you know, openly anti-oil and gas as, you know, the Biden administration has, has been. Regardless of, yeah, yeah. If you're a Democrat in the energy industry and the, pre the president-elect is saying, I'm going to shut oil and gas down day one, it makes it really hard to vote for that person because your job goes away, right? Well, let me ask you guys a question. I know this isn't my podcast. Sorry, Justin. No, no, no. This is conversational. Let's go. Let's go. What is, what is the inflection point, you think? I, I've heard stories about, you know, near misses with, you know, New York City almost running out of natural gas and, and blacking out for weeks on end. What do you think is the inflection point that, that gets more people to wake up here locally in the United States to caring about energy policy and appreciating the role of oil and gas like what 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 is the magic event that you just think makes people go like holy cow like this can't happen uh, i think it's yeah. kamala harris getting voted in as president no i'm just kidding uh i <laughs> no i i i think it's 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 deep there's a it has to it has to hit home right like no one ever thinks about life insurance until their husband passes away or no one ever thinks about something until like they get in a major car accident or they almost have a heart attack like change the, like the pain of not changing doesn't really increase until like it leads to death or suffering and so i think it's something to that effect um i don't it's, it's a great question i i don't that really is to me is like the only time someone really changes and opens their eyes to things is like, it's like, Oh, I want to get healthy and work out. And they don't. And then all of a sudden they have a massive heart attack and then they're hell bent to get healthier. It's like those, that seems to be when your back's against the wall and you have no choice to make a change. And so like, but and you look at it when like, you know, Texas froze over at that point, then there was some efforts put into winterizing gas plants and, although everyone all of a sudden became an ERCOT expert and like a power grid expert, which was so funny to observe, uh, especially on social media. Um, but then I think it like kind of opened people's eyes and, you know, maybe it's, it's something to, to that effect, but I don't know. It's, that's a tough, yeah, tough question. I, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, I think it's fascinating when every winter we see these Russian LNG tankers parked in Boston Harbor, New York Harbor, you know, because they have to import, you know, they have to have U.S. owned ships according to the Jones Act to bring in U.S. LNG and they can't do that. So they have to import it from Russia. And uh, like we're currently in the conflict with them. Right. That That's interesting to me. Um, so something might have to happen there. And then similarly, I talked about this on Justin and I's first podcast in my in my prediction podcast. But, you know, the port of Long Beach imports millions of barrels from South America, which are like the least environmental performing barrels on the planet. And um, in my opinion, when COVID was happening and all of the ship backup, you know, we kind of heard about all the backup at the Port of Long Beach and all that uh, with goods and services. Well, if there's ever a backup there or God forbid, like a terrorist attack there, that is a national security problem. Like 40 million people live and depend on that area and i that's you know, it, europe got off easy this oh, winter man. in my opinion and <laughs> i think we were all this fall going like "Ooh, what's going to happen in germany this winter and they, they got off easy but i agree with both of you i mean i think it's there's going to have to be an event in either south you know southwest california west coast la or new york boston dc corridor where people have a energy deficiency in the winter or in the summer maybe right you can't cool your house or heat in the winter whatever but i i feel like there's going to be like a in the next three to five years like a major shortage of energy somewhere in those areas that makes more people go hmm this uh this isn't working Maybe it would be cool if I had a gas line into my house. <laughs> right. But but you know what's funny is that the argument there is like, 
oh, we had to depend on natural gas. Well, that just emphasizes the importance for more uh, renewable energy, which again, I'm not arguing that, but again, it's like you always get sort of this this battle is it's like, well, oil and gas saved us this time, which now we need to pump more money into X, Y, Z. But, but you know, it, and again, which, which again is not bad. The reality is we need more energy, which I am by no means a nuclear expert, but I just feel like if, if we could get over this hurdle of like not accepting or not investing into nuclear energy, that that could be a huge support system for all the, a lot of the problems that we currently have. I know there's some, some good technology and and investment going into small, major, small modular reactors, which I think have a pretty unique application for a lot of different industries and and maybe even residential. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting question. It's like, at what point do we, everyone just finally realize like, ah, okay, this is what we need. And again, everyone's goals and values are different. And the one thing I was going to ask you before we close out, I know I've taken too much of your time already, but um, is is obviously depending on who gets elected or which administration gets in, that, that influences policy, which ultimately influences the direction of where we go with oil and gas and other industries, renewable. But like going into this election, like where do you think people are more concerned about is it to get inflation down is it energy security is it to protect the borders is it increased military uh, involvement decrease like where do you think like the weight is coming from going into this election uh, it, it's got to be your pocket people vote with their money they vote with their pocketbooks i mean that that's been proven time and time and time again so what's the best way to do that is lower energy prices, right? I mean, it affects the cost of everything, which is why even to this week, we're still pulling out half a million barrels of the SPR every week. I mean, uh, you know, SPR has been cut in half, more than half. And all of that is just to keep the current cost of energy down, uh, thus influencing elections. So I'll keep my thoughts out of that. But um, it's, it's, People vote with their wallets. Climate was like number 21 on the list of the most recent poll I saw for reasons why people would vote for somebody. So mm. uh, everybody wants their neighborhoods to be safe. Everybody wants their uh, bank accounts to be full. Everyone wants the stock market up. And so, you know, it comes down to how can you jig the system to make it look like that today or election yeah. day? Yeah, no, fair answer. I agree. Awesome. <laughs> Showstopper. Awesome. <laughs> nice. All right. Next religion. Guys. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> oh man. But no, gentlemen, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, real quick, either one of you tell everyone where they can find your show, how to connect with you guys, uh, and, and then we'll wrap this thing up. Yeah. So uh find us at let's clear the air now.org. That's the website for the let's clear the air campaign. There's a link right from the homepage to find the podcast and I'm sure all the podcasts are on Apple and Google and Spotify and wherever your favorite oh, yeah. pod, podcast uh, listening platform is. Uh, I, I, I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I only have LinkedIn. So you can hit me up on LinkedIn. I don't do Twitter or anything else. Instagram kind of, old school like that but adam adam you're on linkedin you're on twitter right where what else have you got that's it linkedin's my primary it's not yeah. anonymous so i prefer to communicate on there perfect well, what i'll do is i'll put the link in the show notes to uh, your guys's website your linkedin profiles uh, and if there's any other uh links you got likes would like to send me i'll make sure to include that in the show notes um and again everyone out there really appreciate the support connect with these guys subscribe um again we just we have to all communicate we all have to educate each other uh in a kind way uh in, in a non-divisive way because there's enough of that shit out there already and with that being said everyone always remember that everyone deserves access to energy and we is greater than me thanks everybody have you ever thought about what a podcast could do for your b2b business well you might be surprised by the benefits it could offer Firstly, podcasts provide an amazing opportunity to establish your brand as an industry thought leader. By sharing your insights, experiences, and expert opinions, you position yourself as an authority, gaining the trust and the respect of your audience. Secondly, 
Hosting a podcast is a fantastic way to engage your customers on a deeper level. It's not just about promoting your products and services. It's about providing value through engaging content, fostering strong relationships and loyalty among your listeners. Oh, and did I mention networking? Yes, that's a huge part. Podcasts are an incredible networking tool. When you interview guests from your industry, you're not only creating valuable content, but you're also building relationships that can lead to future partnerships and collaborations. But we know starting a podcast can feel daunting. I've had several people reach out to me lately asking how to create a podcast, and that's where I'm going to try and come in and help. I'm here to help you navigate the podcast world. Reach out to me for a 15-minute call where we can discuss your podcasting ambitions. Whether you're starting from scratch or simply looking to improve your existing show, I'm here to help. And guess what? I have a playbook too, a step-by-step guide to launching a successful podcast, and I can't wait to share it with you. This playbook has everything from topic brainstorming to technical setup to effective promotion strategies, all the essentials for a thriving podcast. So why wait? Get in touch today and let's embark on this podcasting journey together. After all, your voice deserves to be heard. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Wicked Energy with JG. And look, if you or your organization wants to start a podcast, please visit my website and sign up for a free guide on how to start a successful podcast. Once you get through it, let me know if you have any questions or getting started. Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Peace.